Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Thank you for all your wonderful feedback. I hope you are having a nice Chag Moadim Lesimcha. Today we're actually continuing the conversation from last week, and I am desperately looking for someone who has made weddings, simchas in the wedding department and is willing to talk about the financial burden of it. And I'll happily take all the positive things as well, as long as you're open to sharing the financial end of it. You can be anonymous, but I need it to complete a series I'm working on. So please hit me up if you would like to volunteer. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. We have a WhatsApp discussion group that you can join. Message me if you'd like the link. Here we go. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, Franz Dance. Today we are continuing our conversation around ADHD, momming, parenting, teaching children with ADHD. And today with us we have Rabbi Ezra Elstein. Welcome to the show, Rabbi Ezra. We're so excited and delighted to have you here to talk about some other perspectives. So... Welcome to the show. Thank you, Francisco. So I am an ADD or whatever, ADHD, whatever they're calling it these days. I'm an ADHD child, parent, adult, and I was raised in Philadelphia. And I went through the schooling system and I saw what it was like, felt what it was like. It was kind of rough and I'm sure my parents didn't have it too easy either. Okay. Let's backtrack a little backtrack. bit. Sorry. Okay. okay, tell us about yourself professionally and religiously, just so we have an idea of who we're listening to. Okay, so I was raised in Ronhurst, Philly, which is a very just simple, down-to-earth neighborhood. I had one foot in the right-wing, black hat, yeshivish shul, and I had one foot in the more modern, Wayu Machmir, uh, B'nai Israel. And I love both. I did, you know... I did Abu Subhanim, Mishmar, I did Bnei Akiva, and I got to see all a bunch of different sides of Judaism. It was really nice growing up, and my family totally encouraged that, and, you know, make your own path, and my family had a direction, which was it's not important what color your kippah is, or what hat you're wearing, or even what jacket you wear to shul. It's just important that you show up, and you're part of the people, and you give what you can. And tell us about your professional background. Professional background, um trained in rabbinics. Uh, I have a smicha. Uh, I was shul rabbi for a bit. Uh, went into business, loved it. Went into education, hated it. Uh, got sucked back into education and am loving it. I was going to ask you one of my obvious questions. How did you get into the work you do? But you already told us your history with ADD and your love and hate relationship with education and how you're there now. But tell us how the idea of your school was born and how it developed. So I guess the idea of my school developed that I grew up, I loved my family. I loved everything about being Jewish, but I hated school and grew up questioning and not knowing what to do and had this conflict and this inner turmoil of these rabbis and this body that represents Judaism is horrible and miserable, not, not as an entity, but my experience of it was just very painful. And every day going to school, just a pain. And I would do anything like I'll be sick. I'll cut my arm off. Like whatever it is, please don't make me go back there. And 
every day pleading like and you know at some point you stop pleading but there's always that i don't want to be here i'll do anything to escape is the bell over yet no it's 8 30 and so that experience just i have the home life where i love being jewish and i have the school life where i hate everything i'm doing there and it worked for other kids just not for me and so growing up that put me at a teen at risk like big time and it wasn't me alone almost half my class would went off the derrick or struggled or had major teenage issues and thank god i think they all came back really a lot of good families that took care of their kids and gave them space but we had a lot of stress and we gave our parents a lot of stress and a lot of it was due to just the mismatch in who we were versus the schooling we were going through can you give us some examples of what was so unbearable some of it was uh, do what I say, not what I do, uh, hypocrisy, which a kid picks up on so, so strongly. Like what? For example, um, not a raise equal. That's something that comes across in my educational experience, that certain kids are more equal than others. Either there's a money situation and they can't touch the kid or there's a political situation. And hopefully that, that's been taken care of since I was a kid. I'm sure there's always politics, but hopefully it's gotten more professional. The teachers and administration said, we don't give any special treatment. And then you saw special treatment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Other issues were just davening in school is miserable. Go pretend to talk to God for 40 minutes now and shake. And if you're not shaking the right way, then like it's going to be bad for you and you're going to get in trouble. Like maybe that's not how I connect. Maybe I only wanted to connect for two minutes and the other 40 were completely fake. And every day, just no matter how I was feeling, no matter how I was connecting, there was boredom, there was unpleasantness, there was not much there for me as a person. And that builds up over time. And I'm sure it's different for every kid. Everybody experiences it differently, but it's a major challenge to go do something day after day after day and hate it. And then come out into the real world and be like, wow, I love this. This is so exciting. Two follow-up questions. Socially and academically, how were you doing? Meaning, was it boring, but you still kind of got through everything you needed to academically? I was at the top of my class academically in everything. So did the teachers give you a hard time just because of behavioral issues, not academic? Yeah, I didn't have any problems in academics. Uh, maybe they complained that I didn't do as much homework as they wanted. Is that something very common in children with neurodiversity? So uh, children children with neurodiversity are either going to completely give up and not bother because it's too much work, or they're going to do whatever they can to make the pain go away quickly, including getting it all done quickly. And so they'll do quite well. In neurodiverse community, I mean, typically your neurodiverse kids are bright. They're really intelligent. And they're quick. And so if they can even put on a game for five minutes to do what you want, they're going to get it done better and very, very well. And they're going to get it straight A's. Now, if they can't sit, if they can't get it together for a few minutes, then they're not going to do well at all. But they're the brightest kids. And you knew right away you were different. No, I didn't know I was different at all. I thought I was a normal kid. There's only in hindsight with years of adult development that, hey, square peg, round hole. And nothing against my teachers. My teachers were mostly lovely people. They really cared. 
they're wonderful. I mean, the people that go into Jewish education are the most selfless, devoted people in the world. Who in their right mind would take that low of a salary to do that much work, which you're on call after hours, you have to do all sorts of stuff, you have to prep. These are the best people in the world. It's absolutely not their fault. Just square peg, round hole. What does that mean? If you have a system that caters to a certain type and puts kids into a certain box, that's amazing for those that fit very nicely. But otherwise, you have a Sodom situation where you have this bed that fits everybody and, okay, you don't really need your head for this bed. Or, yeah, you don't need your toes. Or, you know, you're going a little bit too slowly. Let's stretch you out. And that's a problem. So you didn't know you were different. You never had the thought, why can my friend sit through this class and I'm going nuts? Or did you assume everyone else is going through the same thing you are? I mean, there was a... If you look in the class and... Most classes, there are amazing classes where this is not the case, but in your average class, you have the bottom third of kids that just don't get what's going on for either they're too spaced out or they really just, it's not approaching them in a way they understand and they just don't know what's flying. And the top third of the kids, they're all bored and they're bored for different reasons. And then they're going to use that energy in other ways because they already got what's going on. And the middle third tend to be very happy. Because the teacher's teaching to them. Some teachers teach to the top bit and then everybody else is messed up. And some teachers teach to the bottom and then the rest. But whoever the teacher's engaging is doing okay. And then the other groups on the bell curve are not very happy. And it's, it's nothing that the teacher's doing wrong. It's just the system. And socially, how did you do? I had friends. I had the most amazing class. I really did. And that really carried me through life. Whatever we were going through, we did it as a team. We had similar problems. We talked. We were all friends. There was, if there was any, ever any bullying in my class, which I know it's a common thing now, but any bullying from older kids, we banded together. Uh, any bullying of younger kids, we stopped it right away. Once in a while, one of the kids would lose their temper and start, and the other kids would just restrain them. And we were totally a team. I had the most amazing class. That's good to hear. Thank God. We need, we need to do an episode on bullying and anti-bullying. So maybe you'll volunteer for that. Oh my gosh. Uh, bullying is killing so many kids these days. And if, if it's not nipped in the bud, it can like destroy a kid's life. I, I know schools where the good kids, the sweet, wonderful kids that are doing well in school will not travel solo. They'll only go around in threes or fours because they don't want to get beat up or picked on or pushed. And I know so many girls who are destroyed because they're just, everybody makes fun of them for whatever reason. And they'll band around one or two girls who are going to inflict pain on other girls. I mean, they probably have their own issues that they're taking out on them. But if it's not nipped in the bud, it's deadly. Yeah. And unfortunately, that dynamic doesn't really escape once people graduate. But it is less uh, overwhelming, I guess. Yeah. No, you, you keep your life with you wherever you go. So anyhow, so can I talk about uh, ADHD kids in general? Yes, let's talk about that. But also, if I can add a little lens to it, sure. talk to me about the transition of you. I, I'm assuming in the last 10, 15, 20 years, these terms and labels have evolved and now there's more information and there's more, there's more acknowledgement that there may be. We, we may have to question the systems and our school's traditional style so address that 
information that came to you after as we talk about kids with ADHD? No problem. As things have developed, psychology has developed, and these problems, not problems, these challenges and opportunities keep occurring. We seem to be blessed in this generation with an ever-increasing number of neurodivergent kids. And the question is why? Why is our generation getting so many neurodivergent kids? Is it because we never had them or we never knew we had them? I mean, your grandparents don't know what to do with these kids. Like, they had a few wild kids, but nothing like what we're seeing. Nothing with the levels of what we're dealing with at early ages. Well, the only answer I have is the food we eat. <laughs> I, definitely, I food is a major component. all the issues that are new on all the processed food we feed our kids. I, again, I would not stand in the way of that. Um, if you ask many, many medical professionals that are dealing with actual treatment for neurodivergence, they all start with diet. In our school, one of the things we're actually, we hold people accountable for is there is no sugar, no food coloring, no MSG allowed into any products that walk into our building. So uh, we have an ADHD friendly diet Any Ask any parent what happens when you give kids sugar and you get smiles and laughs. And, and we're oh going into Simchas Torah, right? right? Simchas Torah. I mean, I'm going to have those kids after Simchas Torah. We're going to need a detox for a day. I'm going to literally take them outside. We're just going to run. Luckily, there's dancing with Simchas Torah, so it helps a little I bit. I heard of parents um, who pay their kids for the candy. <laughs> you like that? Uh, we used to pay in Legos. Collect as much candy as you want. We'll buy it off you in Legos. Uh, now we play in Pokemon. Got it. Um, but and it can still have a bit, you know, they skim off the top. It saves a lot in dental. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about ADHD. So, kids. Anyhow, so ADHD. Okay. So ADHD kids, there's tons of them. And the problem is not that they're ADHD kids. The problem is that we're not respecting them. We're assuming that, Hey, this kid came like this. They're broken. And reality is Hashem runs the world. And yes, there's some stuff we're doing to make it worse. And there's some stuff we can do to make it better. But there's a reason Hashem is sending us higher and higher percentages of neurodivergent kids. It's not 5% of kids. It's not 10% of kids. If you ask percentage-wise how many meds we're giving out in a regular school per capita, it's almost 50%. Right? Some kids, you know, some schools higher, some schools lower. But we've got crazy numbers of kids that we're medicating just to fit into what they're doing. It's, it's scary. And the reality is Hashem is not giving us these children to medicate. These are the kids with all the potential. And yes, they're terrible at using that potential. Absolutely horrible. It's like giving a little kid a rocket engine instead of a scooter. Like, okay, if you give a five-year-old a scooter, they know what to do. They can go around the block. If you give them a bike, they'll make their way. They'll get a skin knee. But if you give them a motorcycle, they're going to crash into every building they find and keep crashing because every time they hit the engine, it goes at 150 miles an hour and they don't know what to do with it. That's these kids. These kids have jet engines. These kids are going to change the world. Look at Elon Musk. Look at, look at all these guys who dropped out of school because they were ADD and couldn't handle school and became billionaires and changed the world. That's the kids Hashem's giving us right now. And the very simple reason why he's giving it to us is there's a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. Look around the planet. I mean, you want to look at ecology, 
there's pollution everywhere. There's homelessness. There's, we have every ill facing humanity ever described. And there's so much work to do. So Hashem said, Hey, here's a bunch of heroes. Okay. You don't know what to do with them because I didn't have that many heroes in the last generation. Okay. Go learn. That's what your job is. And next generation is going to be more because there's so much work to do. So we need those Albert Einsteins. We need the geniuses. We need the people that will revolutionize the world in Torah, in education, in science, in, in social. Like we need everything we can get because the world's full of challenges. And so that's why we're getting these amazing, amazing kids. Okay. You don't know how to handle an amazing kid. Don't fix them. Don't cut off half their brain. Right? Let them live and figure out what to do. Yeah. It's harder. It's a thousand times harder. I bet it was a lot harder to raise an Einstein or a Tesla than it was to raise that guy you never heard of. Let's fast forward. Tell us how your school was born. So my school was born, the idea of my school, when I came out of 12 years of very expensive Jewish education, a wonderful home, loving parents, really no gripes on my family life and said, I'm done. No more tefillin, no more Shabbos, no more kosher. Bye. And my parents brought a family friend in, wonderful people in my community. Michael Bohm came in and said, hey, you're thrown away generations, 3,000 years of work. Your grandfather survived the Holocaust. And you're throwing away because what? You didn't like your teachers? I'm like, dude, you had 12 years to convince me. I'm done. Bye. I'm done. I, I did my time. Like, I'm out on good behavior. I'm done. It wasn't even early. It was just good behavior. And he's like, yeah, but you never saw the real thing. I'm like, what? You're telling me this now? You couldn't have told me this 12 years ago? He's like, just try it for a month. So I went to Or Sameach in Israel for a month and had the time of my life. And I hated Jewish education. And all of a sudden, I'm there. I'm like, God, parents, can I st- stay for another month? And they were so happy. Can I stay for another month? Like, look, you can stay till the end of the year. It's fine. And then I stayed and then I learned and then I went to Colo and I was just like, this is so amazing. Who kept this from me and why? And so I've been working with kids, teens at risk, people in similar situations because I get what they're going through. I get why you would not want to be religious, having everything and throwing it all away. Now, imagine you don't have everything. Imagine you don't have amazing, loving parents. Imagine you don't have a good connection with them. Imagine that you don't have a wonderful home life or you have other challenges or you're really, really neurodivergent, or imagine you're bullied. Like, What chance do those kids have? If I come from a great home, had a wonderful, charmed life, and my only problem was school, these guys have much bigger problems than I did. Right? How are they going to survive? And so I, no matter what I was doing, I found myself drawn to kids at risk at different ages. And I got where they were coming from, but didn't ask much of them. We talked, we talked, we talked. And we learned and wherever I went, I created a group of kids that I would meet with and hang out with. And that was wonderful. I enjoyed it. And even when I moved out to Philly, same thing. And I actually tried to get into Jewish education and I went for a Montessori degree and I spent months and months and months training for it. And then finally I got a job teaching in a Montessori Orthodox school in Brooklyn. And I don't know if you know the song, the bumps from the Lower East Side. No old journey song basically they the principal hands the rabbi the worst kid in the, the worst grade in the school and says all i want from you is don't quit and by the way my phone is unavailable because so you can't tell me you're leaving and so 
I got a class that everybody else quit. They're like, hey, we went through three teachers last year. All we want from you, please just stay. I'm like, okay, no problem. That's all you want? Great. And I had those kids. They were flying. They were amazing. And they went from being the worst class in the school to being the models class that the other kids were trying to copy. And then the principal comes to me three months later and says, hey, where are our standardized tests? I'm like, what? Yeah, you have to start teaching the standardized tests. I'm like, you said I could do whatever I wanted as long as we're learning. And he's like, yeah, but you did the fun stuff. Now you have to like do the real stuff. I'm like, fun stuff. These kids are learning math. They're learning science. They're learning Kodesh. They're like, they're learning reading. They're learning writing. Wh- what more do you want from them? They're really learning. And it was a fight all year long. It was a fight. And finally, I'm just like, I'm done. I can't. Like, I apologize to the parents. They called me up over the summer and said, please come back. Please come back. I'm like, I'm done. I can't handle Jewish education. I'm sorry. They're like, but, but our kids never learned before. But like, I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I can't handle the politics of it. Like, whenever I do something right, it's a fight. Whenever I do something wrong, it's like, okay, no problem. And I, I was, I tapped out. I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm gonna go make money, and I did. Got the business, went, sold stuff on Amazon, did some insurance work. I had the last. It was enjoyable. Paid the bills. It was much easier work than education. So what brought you back? And then. My daughter was in school. She's going to kindergarten. And I'm like, all right, we know we're going to have challenges in school. Thank God she was a firstborn child. She had tons of attention from her parents. She's on the way to being educated already. Let's make sure that everything goes smoothly. So we dropped her off at school. We're like, we don't want anything from you. We just want her to have a happy Jewish experience that she loves being part of. She's happy to go to school. And this is kindergarten. I'm like, you can't get that wrong. Like, they're just playing. And within six months, it was pretty apparent she wasn't happy. And my wife's like, you have to do something. I'm like, no, I'm working. I'm enjoying it. Like, so year two, we go back in and we're like, okay, this time we're going to be on the same team as the teachers. We're going to be cooperative. We're going to be the best parents ever. And we set up that we're going to meet with the teachers every six weeks. Before school starts, once school starts, and we're going to be on the same team, we're going to be partners. And that way, any problems come up, any little things, we're there and we're, we're engaged and we'll give the teachers whatever they need, whatever incentives, whatever, anything. And that way we're a team. And um, it didn't work very well. I, I don't think the teachers knew what to do with us. Like they showed up to the meeting. They didn't really know much about my kid. They didn't really know what she was doing. They didn't really know much about her. And we're just like, okay, well, here's what's going on on our end. Here's a... Like, what's going on on your end? They're just like, yeah, she's fine. She sits there. And she just got bored. And we had to fight for accommodations to just, like, you know, she's reading Harry Potter. They're reading basically C-Spot Run. You know, when the class is reading C-Spot Run, can she read her book in peace? Just simple things like that. And, like, not disturbing anybody. And eventually, we're just like, okay, I, I can't do this. And I met with the principal. I said, look. What can we do to make this work? You know, we had this one teacher that we liked, her Judaic studies teacher. What can I do? You know what? We'll give you money. You give this teacher a bonus. You give a different teacher a bonus that's in, in, um, inconvenienced. Can we please keep this teacher? At least we had a working relationship with one teacher. Just bump her up to the next grade with my daughter. You don't have to tell her anything. I just we'll, we'll sponsor it. I just offer it to them. No, can't do that. I'm like, just, please just offer it. She could say no, but you know, based on what teachers get paid, a nice bonus wouldn't hurt. I'm like, 
I'll, I'll pay you up front. Like, whatever you want. Like, just work with us somehow. No, we don't do that. So I went to the local Rosh Hashiva. Uh, back then, there was only one. But, and I said, hey, what do we do? Our kid's miserable in school. This is first grade. I can't do this to second generation. He's like, yeah, Ezra, I'm sorry. I know you. You're going to have to start something. I'm like, you kidding me? He's like, yeah. I mean, you're just going to have to start something. There's really nothing here that will fit you. And so we went back to the school and we said, look, can we make any sort of things that'll work? No. I said, I'm going to have to start something. And the school gave us our, their blessing and spent a year finding the different models. Uh, we found Acton Academy out of Austin, which is taking the secular world on fire. We found Rabbi Reddy's program. I'd worked for him previously and worked with him. And we put the two together and it was like a match made in heaven. Tell us a little bit about the programs and why they work. So Acton Academy said, hey, Montessori is awesome. It's really cool. It works really well for little kids. But for bigger kids, they need more social engineering. So they took modern business practices straight out of an MBA program. The founder owned an MBA program. And they said, hey, let's apply modern business management to children from ages six and up. And it worked incredibly well to the point where they're at 500 schools right now and counting. And yeah. And so the kids are happy. They develop. They, the social life is amazing. And they just mature so rapidly. They take responsibility for their own education. They're engaged. They learn about democracy. They learn about participation. They learn about social interactions. They learn about social contracts. And they have opportunities to pursue what they enjoy, what they value, and to become little adults. Not not that they're pushed into it, but they're given so many opportunities to be big and to grow up that they just love it. And this is from age six? That's from age six and up, uh, Acton Academy. They have younger also, but that's basically Montessori training. And you offer it for boys and girls? Uh, Yeah, we offer for boys and girls. We are finally separate. Everybody is so happy. Parents are happy. The kids are happy. And I don't have to keep asking Ashila, can I keep the boys and girls together this year? We don't really have space. So thank God. We finally have a separate studio for girls and we have one for boys. And really everybody's happy. How many kids do you have? How old is the school? We are in our fifth year uh, and we started out in my basement. We had four children, two of which were mine. So really two families. And uh, it was phenomenal. It was it was just a beautiful experience. And the next year we had eight and some of them worked, some of them moved away. And the next year we had 15, which was a mistake. We grew too fast. We took in kids that were not part of our elements that we were not naturally serving. And they all did really, really well, but it took a lot out of me and it, it set the organic growth back, even though the kids were helped tremendously. And then last year was just amazing. I'm like, okay, we're going to stick to what we're good at. We're going to stick to the age groups we're at. And we had 14 children last year. This is all without advertising because I'm a one-man show. You're Um, the only teacher? I'm not the only teacher, but I'm the only one who runs things. Mm -hmm. And how many teachers do you have? Um, I have one other teacher right now for the girls. Okay. So you are teaching also? I'm teaching all day. Uh, I wouldn't call it teaching, but you'd have to actually, I really have to tell you about it. It's a totally different experience. Let's go into that. Tell us what do you do with the kids that they actually learn 
but they can't take standardized tests. Is the not taking the standardized test because the test is too formulaic for them or because they don't have the knowledge to pass it? Okay, so I'm actually back up. Okay. Um, I'm sorry for miscommunicating. Uh, we take more standardized tests than any other school in Philly. We take a standardized test in October and we take one in the end of May. And we do it because we are so far out of the box, we need a box to just measure ourselves against. And so when I say my kids on average over five years have gone up a grade level and a half based on standardized testing, I can actually prove that. I can just pull out records, which is true. And thank God, even though we're out of the box and we're not teaching to the test, our kids do, thank God, very, very well academically. And how do you do it? Um, so we, we take two standardized tests. They're Iowa's. They're the gold standard. They're what your parents used and what you probably used as a kid. Well, I didn't because I grew up in Moscow, but someone else okay, So yeah. And so we do them twice a year. So we get a benchmark. Um, I think the only ones I won't be testing this year are my seventh graders because they're, they're done. Like the standardized test doesn't cover the level they're on. Okay. They're out of high school. And so- and how do you do that? Okay, so I'm going to describe it the Jewish way. There are many, many different layers. Acton describes it their own way, but it's very simple. I went to Israel and I fell in love with the base measures. You're learning independently, or you can choose a Harusa. And if you want a Harusa, they'll help you find one. And you work with them as a partner. And once in a while, you get stuck because there's only so much you can do on your own. And you go to somebody who's on the side who's called the Shoal Meshif, who's just there. Their job is to answer questions when people get stuck. And you're like, hey, we were working together. We tried it out and we got stuck. And they'll help you out. And they'll say, oh, did you check this out? Did you check? You know, and they'll help you out as best they can. And then you move on you go back to work. And then once in a while, there's a, a class we call it a shear where you upgrade the level of what you're doing or f- brings in it from another perspective or it helps you bring your learning up to the next level. And then you go back to work, learning through Caruso, learning through friends, uh, working with yourself. And then there's a mashkiach. And the job of the mashkiach is to go around and say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, you look sad. What's going on? Oh, you didn't sleep last night? Oh, you're having trouble with roommates. And to say, hey, there's something going on in the school. We're having a bullying issue or whatever it is. And the mashkiach's there to help bring up morale and make sure things are working nicely and show you the higher purpose of life and what you're living for, what you're doing and why. And so it's not just academic work, but it becomes part of who you are. And so we basically said, let's do that. And I tell this to people in Lakewood. They're like, oh, I hear you run this really weird school. And I describe it. I'm like, yeah, we have Mashkiach, we have a Sholomesha, we have a Magadshir, we have Kavruz learning. They're like, wait, that doesn't sound radical. That's what we do all day. You just like, use it on kids. They're like, wait, but, but, but for what ages? I'm like, oh, oh, that you have a problem with. The system you're good with, you just say it can't be used for kids. They're like, yeah, you can't do that with kids. I'm like, why not? I saw a little clip. You had children on the computers and they were working on the same doc. Is that? Oh, Google Docs is wonderful. What were they doing? Depends what it is. I mean, the kids do so much. They write stories together. Um, typically, one child will write a story by hand. Then they'll type it up on the computer, which goes through an editing process. That's how they learn to become good writers, by actually writing. And then they get it peer-reviewed. And so they'll send it to two friends who will give them their feedback. The friends feel amazing because it's like, oh, wow, they think that I'm a good writer and they want my feedback and they want me to read their story. The kids feel amazing because their friend is reading their story and paying attention to it. 
And they all become better writers. But don't tell them that. Corporate culture, implementing that? I, I guess so, yeah. Few follow-up questions. Does this system only work once the kids know how to read and write? Or does this actually work on learning how to read and write in Korea on your own? That's where Rabbi Jonathan Reddy comes in. So kids that do not know how to read and write, writing is actually pretty easy. For a six-year-old, it's pretty simple. We have very few kids that can't write. If they really can't write, we'll give them letters to trace or we'll let them draw pictures of what they're doing. Like that's We haven't even had that issue as a six-year-old because okay. a six-year-old can pick up writing very quickly even if they know nothing. And reading? Reading is a challenge. Uh, reading, they start, I think, they start in four, four-year-old nursery now, which is kind of crazy when you think about the latest science talks about some kids don't even have the capability to learn writing, learn reading until they're seven, eight years old. And so if you teach them at an early age, it's just going to backfire. And so Rabbi Jonathan Rieti's system is amazing because it uses pictures. And you can go through a good chunk of his curriculum with just pictures. You can learn your entire Hebrew language. You can learn a lot of diktuk. You can even help kids who are learning Chomish who can read who can just read the word for you. And then you tell them the parts that you know, since you're not good at the reading, but you've spent your time and efforts working on the actual language acquisition. Because language acquisition has nothing to do with reading. Mm. Now, reading is wonderful. Reading gives kids a sense of independence. One of my children last year told me that, hey, I don't, he was six. He said, I don't really want to learn math this year because everything I look at, I can't read it. And I don't know reading at all can I just do reading? And that's what he did. He focused on Hebrew reading, English reading, and he spent a whole year on it, skipped all math, uh, skipped a lot of other stuff. Read, 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 read. And at the end of the year, the kid can read (laughs) because anything the kids are ready for and they put their effort into, they develop and they shine. Is there any backfiring with this kind of free-spirited education? Um, Yes. The parents need a lot of education. We'll take the parents. It's actually much harder to be a parent by us because you're not getting these nice little post-its home. Your kids aren't reading these Parsha sheets that were printed by a teacher that you pretend that they're learning when really they're just reading it slowly for the first time at your table. There's a lot less instant feedback for the parents. And sometimes your kids will go a year without learning math, which is horrible. I love math. I love math. And I push all the kids to be phenomenal at math to the point where I I just want to say last year we had a group of fifth graders demand a high school geometry class, and they did phenomenally well at it. They got about a third away into the textbook. Nice. So I love math, but your kid might go a year without learning math. But guess what? We're in it for the long haul. Like your kid might be six, might be seven. They're going to turn 16 at some point. And you want them to have everything by then. And if they develop reading amazingly, and then they take time and say, hey, well, I did reading last year. I'm going to have to put more effort into math. That's great. If they spend more time learning language acquisition and then they're like, you know, I want to actually learn certain parts of Torah or I want to go do halacha, right? That's all amazing. And the thing is, if kids are working their hardest in something they believe in, they learn it deeper, it goes in, it penetrates, and then they come out knowing it. How do you handle davening? Davening's been different all the time because we are a to some extent, democratic. The kids get to decide a lot of things. And so this year, there is a group that Dobbins with me. 
I have 11 boys that I'm working with. Two of them choose to daven with me. Uh, teacher-assisted davening. The other nine have their own program that they're running. And they each, some of them daven together. But most of them daven on their own individually. We have, thank God, access to an actual shul. And they love it. Two of the kids have their own parents that daven there. And so they actually daven in their father's place. And it's really adorable. And how is your davening as an adult? As an adult, I struggle with davening. I absolutely do. Because I have so many hours under my belt of meaningless tefillah, it is sometimes hard for me to connect to davening. I like my personal davening, I like my personal shmanasrei, but I do have a trouble at times connecting to a minion. That is a personal failing. I'm not proud of it, but it's something I'm working on actively. Thanks for commenting on that. Can you comment on medication and parents who, the parents who come to you, are they resisting medication or are they medicated and want to take them off? Talk to me so about that. Almost every, almost every parent that comes to me with a ADHD child in the system, the child is on some sort of medication. Um, we work on normalizing and stabilizing their behavior within school. So once they get normalized, they become a tied student, they feel comfortable, they feel secure. And then we work with the parents and the physicians or psychologists to get the child organic. Some, some children, it happens within a few months. Some children could take years, but the goal is to have an independent child who's not held by a crutch. We have a system that works for every child. It really, really works for every child with any sort of initiative. And it works for them. Especially high engagement. What? Especially high engagement children. You want to give me your ADD kids, your ODD kids. If your child has ODD, for example, that's the easiest for us. What's ODD? Oppositionally defiant. Uh, I believe they called it extreme chutzpah when we were younger. Okay. If your child has a label of ODD and they walk into school, I'm not even going to know about it because oppositional defiance is you're fighting with the teacher. There's no authority figure here that's on top of you. You elect your own student council. Student council elections are every two weeks. The children vote for the three people that run all the discipline in the school. And so kid came over to me today. Rabbi Ezra, this one called me a name. I'm like, what's that have to do with me? Like, oh yeah, that's right, council. Right. And so the kid goes, runs council, council takes care of it. They have their own consequences and their own systems. And discipline is not in my hands. So if you want to be a defiant child with chutzpah, that has nothing to do with me. That's your own council member that you elected. And it, kids have a harder time doing that to their peers. And how are they at home? Do you get feedback from the parents that they can manage their kids at home? So first of all, half the kids in our school are totally neurotypical, wonderful kids. They're all wonderful kids, but they're just neurotypical, regular kids. Never really been a problem at home. Okay. Um, half the kids in my school have all sorts of either diagnoses or could apply for them if they wanted. The children that come in that are neurotypical, within three months, you're going to be seeing better behavior at home. They're going to treat their siblings better. They're going to have more respect towards their parents. And you know our school is working. We're, I mean, we're called Torah im Derech Eretz, right? Derech Eretz is literally just respect and being a good human being. So our school is working when it gets back to home. It takes some time. And I'm going to see better changes quicker in school than at home because the environment's different. But that when that comes back home and the parent says, hey, 
my kid used to do this and now all of a sudden they're more respectful or they're more responsible. I'm like, yes. And so over three to six months, you're going to see a difference in school and sorry, a difference that comes back home. Now for the neurodivergent children, they have more to filter through and they usually come with more baggage because they've had a harder time in school. And so that takes about double. And so starting from September, roll around to camp time. There's not one camp where we haven't had the same kid go back to that camp and say, Hey, that kid's doing amazingly. We had a really amazing trouble with them last year. And this year they're a better kid. And so the camps love them. And then by the time they come back next year, these are normal kids. There's no neurodivergence. They're just regular kids. What are the goals for the school? And can it be implementing these systems into traditional schools or is it growing your school and then creating parallel schools in other communities? So the goal for the school will be to service the needs of Philadelphia, any child that needs something other than a traditional model and has parents that are willing to be partners and part of a team. We only accept parents that are willing to work with us. If you want, if you feel your parent involvement is showing up on parent teacher conference, that's the only time you want to talk about your kids. Stay in a regular school. I, I'm, I'm not going to raise your child for you. No other teacher in our school is going to raise your child. You're going to be part of the team. You're going to have issues at home. You're going to call us and we're going to be like, hey, what can we do? Let's work together. Because we had the child for between us. We have them for all of their time. Let's be a team. We're going to have problems in school. We're going to be like, hey, what's going on? Your child's, oh, sorry. We were out at a wedding like two days in a row and the kid's just off their schedule. Like, okay, can you give them a little bit more slack? No problem. Or, hey, we're having an ongoing issue. Let's bring in the parents. Let's bring in the child. Let's meet about it. You're going to hear from us and we're going to hear from you, hopefully. If I don't touch base with my parents at least once a month, I'm doing something wrong. More often if there are any challenges. What is your financial health like? Are you different from typical schools because you have such low overhead because essentially the kids are running the school? We're different than normal schools because normal schools need to provide a tremendous amount for the students. They have this special and that special. Our students have to provide it. Um, We give them electives. They have to fill them up with their own things. They want to do art. They've got to come up with what art they're going to do. They got to present it. Hey, I want to do this type of art. Okay, no problem. And we'll give them time for it. We don't require all the different things and we get volunteers. We have the most wonderful volunteers because our kids are respectful and they're easy to work with and they want to be part of a class. So if you want to teach a class in art, you come to us, you have willing students. And if they're not willing, they don't get to come. It's not babysitting. You're here because somebody's giving you their time. You'd be super respectful and appreciative, engaging. And six-year-olds can handle that, that agency? Totally. Any age, uh, again, age appropriately, but the agency, they love it. You tell any six-year-old, wow, you're acting so mature. You're acting like such a big person. They're like, like they puff themselves up. They carry themselves. I have a little boy who told me two weeks ago that he didn't know how to sweep. And so one of the bigger kids showed him and his job is sweeping the classroom after every school day. And he spends 15 minutes on it. And he started off terrible. I would give him encouragement. And right now, he does a great job. does a better job than I do. Yes, it takes him longer, but that'll change over time. And you should see him. They do the cleaning. Oh, no. Kids do the cleaning. That's not even for overhead. 
we actually hire a cleaning service at the week, but that's just because you have to be a responsible person. Like, what are you going to have a cleaning lady clean your apartment when you move off to college or go to Shiva? We had that in Moscow. We had uh, chores every day. Yeah, we had to clean our classrooms. Every normal society has kids taking care of things. Did you want to comment on anything from last week's episode? Okay, last week's episode, my heart went out to her. She had such a tough time and she's like, she's practically a single parent because her husband was in residency. Like they, they don't let them out. That's a tough, tough thing. I have four active, amazing, engaging children that there's never a dull moment. And when I go to a Shabbos meal very infrequently, because it just doesn't pay, I don't get to sit at the table. The only saving grace I have is that my wife will take a shift. Like, okay, can I sit and eat, please? I'm really hungry. And I'd like to actually meet the people who invited us over. And she's like, yeah, sure. I'll watch them for 20 minutes. And so we'll swap off. I don't know how anybody would do that as a single parent. And if anybody's even surviving as a single parent, I, my hat goes off to you. I, I couldn't do it. What about Shabbos meals at your own house? What do they look like? Shabbos meals at my house are, everything is almost timed. We run things quickly. We have a game for who washes first so that the kids get there quickly. We actually give out challah to whoever gets there first. If you wash respectfully and first, you get challah first right after my wife, even if you're not the oldest. And so our kids run to wash and they run to come back. And then we have a very interactive Shabbos meal. We share something from the week and the kids share their own stuff. And it's still 30 minutes tops because that's all the kids can handle. With all the games and all the interactivity, it's over in 30 minutes and they're done. My kids can't sit through a two-hour Shabbos meal. Um, could be it's a failing as a parent, but they seem happy enough. <laughs> I mean, the the food, the eating for two hours, I think, is not so great. But the socializing was definitely fun. Yeah, so the kids can go play and then parents can socialize, but don't have to mix the two. Yeah. Okay, is there anything we did not cover that we should bring up? Um, yes. Okay, so I run a school that brings out the best in kids. And each kid has their own schedule, their own highlights, their own passions. There's so many opportunities for leadership and development. We're planning a trip to Lakewood to go to the Arbaminim Shuk because you know we're learning about Sukkot. And so the ultimate trip for that is we're going to go to Lakewood, actually pick out Arbaminim for ourselves and go as a class. And that's a fun activity. So we divided up the trip into a whole bunch of parts and we handed out each part and said, hey, you're responsible for organizing this part. If you want help, we'll give it to you. Uh, we're going out to pizza. So one child was in, responsible for finding the pizza place, taking the orders from the kids, uh, finding out whatever I wanted, putting the order in, making sure it's ready on time, making sure we're running on time. We're going to bingo. One kid's responsible for that. And so every single thing, we give them so many opportunities to run it, to be responsible. And that bleeds over into every part of their life. When they want don't want to learn, we say, okay, fine. It's your life. You don't want to learn. That's fine. Yeah, your friends will pass you by. Life will pass you by. You might not get the best job, but no problem. You can sit there. You can't disturb. You can get your energy out. You can go to the chill room and relax, but that we're not going to force you to learn. It's like Google. Uh, it's, it's exactly <laughs> like Google. And I actually had a Google engineer come to our classroom last year, give them a talk on what it's like to be a Google engineer and hooked us up with a Google engineering program for coding, uh, which some of the kids are still doing and enjoying. And he's like, this feels a lot like home. Like you guys are very googly. 
Yep. That's the word. And I'm like, we're, we're trying. I, that gets the best productivity out of amazing kids. And so let's see what I'd like to say for all those parents out there that are struggling with ADHD children or any sort of neuro, sort of neurodivergent, your kids are amazing. They, they're given all this energy because they have so much to do. There's so much for them to accomplish. They need to accomplish that. Please don't get in their way. Please help them and support them. And yes, they're going to be a lot more work than your average kid. Uh, they're going to require more parental involvement. They're going to need more attention. And we all have busy lives and it's tough to do. But they're going to need it. And you're going to get the highest rewards from these kids. The payout is amazing when you see what they do over the course of their lives if you support them. Everything we do at school is geared from zero to the end. Is all about when they leave us and go somewhere else. Are they equipped to be good husbands, good wives, good fathers, good mothers? Are they equipped to be part of a community member? Like, how will they be when they sit on a school board? I know how my kids will be. Any one of you come in, watch how our board meetings run, because I have 11 very active, very engaged students who are passionate about the things they're passionate about. And we run board meetings for all the time, twice a day at a minimum to decide what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, the rules, the bylaws, the penalties, uh, elections. These kids can run all that stuff. And all the kids sit in one room, no matter what age, and the six-year-olds are able to be elected for student council as much as a 12-year-old? So we try to have it that there's not more than one six-year-old on the student council, but it's very common for the six-year-olds to be on it. It's, it's almost like the kids are respectful and reserve one seat for the little kids, six or seven. Affirmative action. Okay. <laughs> it, it's not, but yeah. And we try to have a rotation almost. It, I don't have full control, but I can encourage the kids to, you know, to be at chesed. And the little kids love it. I heard a lot about the boys. Are there any interesting things about the girls? Okay. So the boys I'm with all the time right now. I used to be with the boys and the girls. The girls have it better than the boys. Uh, we have an older cohort of girls. They're already done. Almost all of them are done their elementary school and middle school work. And so they're working on college placement at this point. They're just writing essays and doing their math work so they can be college ready. Like at 12 years old? Yeah, 12 years old. Yeah. And they have, they have a lot more autonomy. They've been through the system for years. They're much, they're more mature. I actually pulled them out in part to separate the boys from the girls, but also because these girls are so far above the average 12 year old girl that they just run everything and the boys have no chance to shine. These girls are amazing and they, they have a teacher that's with them to be with them and help them and guide them, but they're really running their own show. They already had their careers picked out. They may change, but they're all high profile. They've got how they want to daven, they, how they want to learn about davening. They, they really run their own education and I'm almost like a side point. Do you provide options for them or anything's game? Like they want to learn sewing one day. They, they'll just learn sewing. Um, so we don't, so something I probably didn't get across very well, my apologies. We are incredibly structured and we have a lot of rules, even for the older girls, for the boys and the girls. Because we give them so much freedom, it comes with a lot of responsibility. And so they have rubrics of what they need to accomplish. And I will tell them, hey, here's 
you have to put an hour and a half of this, an hour and a half of this, and then they make their schedules up. And the girls, I don't even tell them that. They just present the schedule and say, hey, here's our schedule. Will you approve this? And so they literally will have their, they had their own schedule for six weeks running. Every six weeks we adapt the schedule and they have to follow that for six weeks straight. It's a lot like gig work where you're working for a company, you're hired as a freelancer and here's what we're going to do. Here's our perspectives of what we're going to accomplish. Uh, here's why it lines up with our values. The girls have it good. They wanted to remodel their room and their studio. And so they came to me and said, Hey, Rabbi Ezra, can we have some funding for this? I'm like, why should I give you funding? They're like, we're doing important stuff. I'm like, I don't know that. They put together a PowerPoint presentation with here's what our goals are here. Each one had, this is my individual goals for the year. Here's how I'm achieving it. Here's how my individual goals. And this is why we think it will help us to have a budget of $200 for our room to redecorate it so that we can accomplish our goals in a better environment and it will work much better for us. And they actually budgeted for what they needed, the supplies they needed. They painted the stuff themselves. They cleaned up after themselves. They picked up their own furniture. They got on Facebook marketplace or from hand-me-downs and they set up their whole environment. I had very little involvement, although their uh, Morisara, who's amazing, was there with them. These girls have a complete independence at this point where they know what they want better than I do. Does this model work for bigger groups of kids? I'm looking at this from an economic point of view where, you know, we have this Jewish tuition, Jewish day school tuition crisis, essentially. And your model is very cost effective. Can I say that? Is your overhead very low? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's biggest, totally cost effective. The biggest expense is, are the teachers and the salaries. And if you have the base medrash model where everyone's teaching themselves, essentially, and you have some supervision slash guidance when needed it's very cost effective you need a building um yeah so our overhead's really low for something that we're doing how much is tuition can i ask tuition's 10 grand all included no fluff no application fees no no application fee no this no that no the other it's 10 it's ten thousand dollars and it really covers everything and what are the expenses you have comfortably the expenses are teachers Teachers get paid. I'm actually free. So that does help things out. And we're saving any salary that I would have made this year for scholarships. And as well, we're saving it for hiring another teacher so I can train in a second classroom because I, I can only run 15 kids on my own. And the building? The building, we get whatever rent we can do. We've, you know, we try not to blow too much money on things that you can't get back. And I'm sorry I'm asking this. How do you support your family? Thank God I have a wife who practices functional medicine and works incredibly hard at helping people heal and actually move past their medical challenges. And she earned a nice income from that. And when I left my job and said, look, I'm going to help Hashem's kids full time, Hashem increased her income almost exactly to the dollar amount in that following year of what I was missing. Do you ever plan to take a salary? I'm using the money that should be going towards my salary to hire more people so I can train the next generation and increase the reach of the school. Right now, we're still in the startup phase. We've done the prototype. It works phenomenally. We've got a great reputation. And at this point, the founders typically don't get a salary. If it grows significantly larger, then why not? 
But right now, my main job is to help those kids in as big a way as I can. Any other expenses? Um, we do pay the children. You- they get a salary of, they get up to $13 a week for working, performance-based. And that comes out of tuition? That comes out of tuition. Uh, adds up to about $500 a year per student. We pay out probably about 80% of that, which is tremendously helpful for the kids because we have a like we have an internal economy. The kids earn money. They have to submit what work they did for the week with witnesses. Do they pay taxes and uh, tzedakah? So they, they do give 10% to tzedakah, uh, which goes into a separate tzedakah fund for each child. So they, you know, some kids actually have budget left over from last year. They have $40, $50 left in tzedakah that they can allocate where they want. Some kids donate it to different causes. They're right now in discussions, and I don't know where the discussion will go, about having a class budget so that they can buy things for the class and basically charging taxes to the community. I don't know where that will okay. go. <laughs> but it, it's, it's been a raging debate for the last few days. Nice. Well, Rabbi Ezra Elstein, this has been a really positive conversation. So thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. Kind of people want to reach out, they can check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening until the end. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, community. Please help us grow. You can also leave a review on whichever app you listen to this podcast. You can also send a nice message or a message with criticism. I love hearing from you. I love your feedback. I hope you have a great rest of your Chag, Montim, Lesimcha, and see you next week. Bye.